And I realized when three other drummers came in <laughs> and they're like <laughs> 10 times better than me. <laughs> it's funny because like Thomas and Palby will joke saying like they prayed about getting a drummer, but they feel like they prayed too hard. <laughs> now they have now four have drummers. Hey guys, welcome to the B-Sides. I'm Eric, your host. And today for our guest, we have David Lim. Hey, David. What's up? What's up? <laughs> yeah, so David, so we like to talk about hot takes on our podcast just as a way to kind of spice it up a little bit. So I, I got to ask, do you have any hot takes in mind? Yeah, um, I guess for me, uh, a lot of people have problems with double standards. Sure, sure. But I feel like... Double standards are actually very, very acceptable um, in today's society. I just think it's inevitable. Interesting. Um, so I'm a pretty big proponent about of like double standards, but um, can you elaborate on like what you exactly mean by double standards in this case? Yeah, sure. Um, I think double standards really pertaining to, um, I guess, by gender. Um, I feel like, uh, I think the issue that I have with people are that, um, when they want something, um, that's to their advantage, mm. then double standards is totally acceptable to them. Sure. But when it works against them, I feel like they try to push for equality. Sure. So what in the ideal world though, do you think it'd be better if, people just stuck with that single standard or do you think that that double standard is kind of just uh to everyone's net benefit yeah so i really do think that uh double standard is uh how we should kind of live our lives but while also understanding that you know when it works against us like we should also kind of come into terms with it hmm. so i think what i'm not for is people um wanting to have double standards on a double standard mm. <laughs> meaning i could have a oh, double meta. standard but you can't yeah oh, yeah yeah i yeah. gotcha gotcha yeah. so you think people are just have that um mental lapse i guess when when thinking of how they themselves react to double standards um whereas they you know have a certain view on people thinking like oh um this person doing something bad i can't mm -hmm. you know um, in, in that sense? Yeah, yeah. I just feel like, you know, sometimes I know that, you know, as a guy or as a man, like I have certain responsibilities and, you know, certain things that I know kind of works against me um, or more so like not necessarily what women have to kind of deal with. Sure. Um, and I kind of think that the opposite is also true. Hmm. And so my belief is that, we just kind of have to accept that fact and just kind of do what we're designed to do. Sure. And just build off from there. Yeah. Kind of, that yeah. makes sense. That makes sense. Kind of it's, it's, it is what it is. Let's just build off from that. Right. I, I like that. So, uh, David, I got kind of, I don't know if this is a related question, but mm -hmm. I wanted to ask if you could go back and uninvent something in the entire world, what invention would you like to erase from history? Uninvent something. It could be a, it could be a website, could be the telephone, could be a the, a book. <laughs> um, that's a good question. Um, 
I kind of feel like if there was anything to kind of, I wish that wasn't invented anymore is social media. Mm, as a broad concept. Yeah. And I know that's pretty ironic considering we're doing a podcast here. <laughs> <laughs> I don't count this social media, man. Come on. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't know how people are viewing or watching this or listening to this podcast. I don't know if it's through YouTube or mm. whatnot, but um, yeah, I feel like social media, I think the intention was good, but I think things just, I feel like over time, things just kind of got out of hand. Um, I think the intention was to raise a lot of awareness mm -hmm. that um, maybe we weren't aware of before or um, to kind of raise the awareness at a faster pace um, than, you know, before internet or whatever came around. Um, but I feel like people, uh, as people really got into social media and um, like, you know, they're like constantly on their phones or sure. like watching, you know, different reels or TikTok, whatever it may be. Like, I feel like that kind of did ruin us. Sure. Um, biologically. Um, I feel like our attention spans a lot shorter. Um, I feel like we deal with more internal like anxiety mm. Um and stuff like that and i feel like mental health was something that kind of got affected by a lot of people right. or to a lot of people from from social media i feel like do, do you think social media was kind of destined to fail in that sense you think it's a human issue and kind of the the idea of social media by nature is is a flawed and kind of incompatible with humans i mean i feel like like i mean like i said i feel like you know the intentions were were good um and I think uh, when it was first created, I think it was just a good way to, you know, connect, uh, connect ourselves with other people or, you know, just be able to just find information um, quicker and, and stuff like that. But I think um, I think us as humans, like we we tend to take things to an extreme. Sure. And so anything that is kind of given to us, we like to just keep pushing our limits until it's actually no longer healthy for us and mm -hmm. i think that's kind of what had happened with sure, social sure. media so it's not even necessarily the company's fault set that own these social media it's, it's it's it could be a dual fault but it's it's more of the user base which is you know gearing each other us ourselves kind of to make ourselves more upset to make misinformation spread yeah i mean i think um i i Yes, of course, there's some blame to, you know, the the company, whether it's Facebook, Instagram, whatever. I mean, they're all owned by the same person, I guess. Mm -hmm. But um, but at the same time, I just feel like it's kind of our, it's within our control. Sure. And it's what we decide to do with it. And so I think when we we're kids, it's like we just don't know, like, what, like, how to discern when it's good to use social media and and to be able to do it in moderation i just feel like it's just very difficult right so. right have you ever tried to personally go on like social media cleanse or anything uh i personally haven't um but i'm also not really big on social media okay, sure. and so i don't really go on um like instagram or or TikTok all that much right. um, but i do go on it sometimes just to like just when I'm like bored, um, but I don't go anything longer than probably like 15, 20 minutes. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. so how do you connect with the, you know, your old friends from high school, college, or is it kind of, you just have to kind of. Oh, I just, 
I just don't. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, um, yeah, my, I, I haven't really talked to any of my high school friends. Mm-hmm. I think the last time I talked to them was probably when I was in sophomore in college. I mean, it's, it's tough when you're not like next to each other. You know? yeah. yeah. And I also moved. Um, I mean, I used to live in, um, like near like Annapolis area, mm-hmm. Maryland. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I moved when I was in college, I moved to, my parents moved to, um, Alaka city, which is like where most of the Koreans live. Right, right, and so right. after that, it was just like really hard to stay in touch. And I, mm-hmm. I would try to drive, you know, back down to like Annapolis area to see them, mm-hmm. but you know, it's just, it was kind of difficult. Sure. It's yeah. talking about your college time. You you went to UMD, right? Yes. And you were a biostatistician major? No, no. I was not. Oh. Yeah. Um, I mean, the topic is biostatistics. Sure. But um, yeah, I mean, I studied. So it's funny because um, I studied biology as my major. And then I minored in statistics. So then if you put that two oh, together. You just, yeah, that, I, just, yeah, I don't I know, man. That sounds like biostatistician yeah. to me. <laughs> One could say um, it's because I was so indecisive. Uh-huh, that I'm uh-huh. just like, why not do both? So you said <laughs> your minor was bio and your major was statistics. No, the other way around. So, okay. My, my major was bio, minor in statistics. Gotcha. Yeah. And then when you went to uh, your master's program at Michigan, was that yeah, bio biostatistics? Okay. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So, so at that point, you decided to merge it all together. Right, right. Gotcha, I mean... Gotcha. Um, I originally wanted to become a dentist. Okay. Um, so, um, you know, in high school, I was shadowing a lot of um, different dentists. And even in college, um, I was shadowing um, different practices. Mm-hmm. But um, I think after my sophomore year in college, I didn't want to do it anymore um, because I just <laughs> didn't want to look at people's mouths all day. Yeah. And... <laughs> That's fair. And, yeah, I mean, I mean, that's, gross mouths out there, you know. Yeah, and that's one reason. But the, I mean, I'll just be frank. Like, I also didn't have that great of a GPA, yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> I knew that I couldn't really, uh, you know, make it. So sure. was that um, was that different from your high school time? Would you have really good grades? Um, I really wasn't that great of a student. Sure. Um, I mean, yeah, in high school, I took a lot of AP classes and honor classes because just because my friends were taking it. Um, but I never personally had like the aspiration or like the motivation to do well in school. Mm. I mean, high school, I think I like graduated with like a three point like six or seven GPA. Um, and then in college, my after my freshman year or my first semester in college, I got a 2.7 <laughs> and I was humbled yeah. uh, very fast. Oh, and, it's not the same. Anymore. Yeah, it took me forever to bring that GPA uh-huh. up to above 3.0. And so, um, but yeah, like I just never really enjoyed school mm-hmm. um, and I hated studying. I hated, you know, just learning back then. And um, I just wanted to like, play sure sure. and i really just went to college just to like hang out with my friends most of the time i wasn't until probably like my senior year when i really took my classes seriously yeah fair fair um so everyone thinks i'm uh everyone's surprised that i even went to grad school because and me included like i did not think that i was gonna go more schooling after i really hated school after college i was like i'm not gonna go to any and yet graduate school no nothing and so like you know but then once i started to think about my career and and how like that just with just this undergrad like with these uh with the bachelor 
bachelor degree, um, like I just couldn't like do anything. Sure, um, sure. And and so I needed to figure out a way to you know find something that I enjoy doing. And then um, my dad kind of told me about the biostatistics field and how that's a growing market. Mm -hmm. um, and my cousin was actually a professor at Michigan. Okay. Um, a biostat professor. And I've talked to him a lot about, you know, what the, what the job is like, like what, what is it, what does it mean to be a biostatistician? And, and once I kind of learned, um, what it's going to be like, I was like, oh, like this is actually something I, I could see myself enjoying um, and being able to put my degree in, you know, into use. Sure, and sure. so that's kind of how it happened. Do you think you could briefly ex explain what biostatistics it is in general? Sure. Um, to be, uh, before I explain, I, I, I hate answering this question because <laughs> oh, no, it's okay. No, it's fine. It's, it's very common. Um, I mean, it's like what people normally ask when they first like, you know, introduce yourself kind of thing. And they're like, Oh, what do you do? And I'm like, I'm a biostatistician. And I kind of brace myself for the question. Cause I know it's coming. It's what, like, what, is, yeah. <laughs> what does that mean? And I'm just like, uh, like, and it took me a while to figure out a good answer uh, to that question. And um, essentially, um, within biostatistics, there, there are many different kinds of fields where you can work. Um, but, um, personally for me, I'm working under, um, a lot of clinical trials setting. Okay. And so, um, a lot of pharmacies, you know, they want to get their drugs approved and, and, um, be able to sell their drugs to, you know, customers essentially mm -hmm. and sure, patients. Sure. Um, and my job is to, um run different tests um so they they'll collect the data and they'll they'll test the drug on patients and then they'll gather all the data and will give it to me and i will analyze the data and we'll let them know um, whether the drug is safe or whether the drug is um, effective um, and just kind of be able to tell them those information based on the numbers that I have. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. Do you think you could explain kind of the importance of that statistical analysis? Like, so you see this data, right? Like, why can't you just say, oh, this data is, is here. So that means it must be good or bad. Yeah. I mean, um, typically when you receive data, um, there are going to be a lot of uh, records. And so it's kind of hard to summarize everything into one and just say like this is good or not you know um you have to look at different um, parameters um, look at different tests um, blood work lab data um you know just also like any sort of like adverse events um mm -hmm. and just be able to tell you know the, the clients like hey like your drug is actually like not working or your drug is actually killing patients. And I actually had a study that just concluded, um, and I can't say what study it is, sure, yeah. but um, yeah, like I was working under this study that essentially was killing patients um, twice as fast as um, a standard of care drug. Not ideal. Um, not yeah. ideal. And so like, it was really hard to like tell the our clients like right. hey look like this is not gonna work and you guys need to kind of shut the study down sure um 
And they hate hearing that because they invest a lot of money into the drug and running the trial. You know, everything to them is just money. Right. So, um, yeah, so like we have cases like those, but we also have cases where like the drug actually works so well that they don't even need to finish the trial and and just go straight to the FDA, which is which is, you know, one of their requirements is to make sure to have a biostatistician to analyze their their data. Sure. And so um, you know, once we are able to give them the good news and, you know, they are able to kind of submit their application to the FDA and then and, and get it approved. Sure. So so um you're talking about these companies really want their drugs to be approved and all these different things, right? So how do you who is in charge of determining if the data you're given is is real and you know is, is valid? Is that is that up to you guys or is that is there like another party and all that? Yeah, so so the company I work for is technically a um, we call it a contract research organization, a CRO. Um, and essentially what that means is um, we are just contracted by different pharmaceutical companies as a independent statistician. Um, and essentially, um, we get data from the clients and the clients will actually prep the data beforehand, um, to make it, um, easier for us to kind of, so they'll do their cleaning process and there's like a standard data sets that FDA requires you to do. And, um, so they'll go through their cleaning process and then they'll give it to us and then we'll go through our own cleaning processes and every data set that we work on or any presentation that we work on, um, there's always somebody auditing, um, our, our presentation or data sets that we work on. So, um, so yeah, like, uh, you know, in that sense, like we're always, uh, making sure that what we present is accurate and precise um so that there are no mistakes or we try to prevent mistakes as much as possible and by going through those procedures i think we ensure that the accuracy and, and the precision is there nice i mean i'm i'm assuming you probably would never actually you, i would hope you would never have had to deal with fake um data yet but do you have any experience with any of those? Or do you have you heard of anything about that? Um, not me personally. Um, I mean, it's it would be very hard to try to fake the data. Um, for one, um, so I guess I should explain what happens in the clinical trial setting. So the clients they are actually not aware of what drug they're giving out to patients, um, and we call that a. Um, uh, a, a double-blind double blind, yeah. treatment, and um, essentially, it's because they don't know what their what drugs they're giving to their patients, they can't really have the opportunity to even fake the data if they could, sure, because sure. they don't even know what they're faking. Uh, interesting. So you you kind of take that possibility out by giving that double blind. That that makes a lot of yeah, sense because yeah. I know in academia settings, when you're kind of you know, I, I was watching this video about a psychologist who kind of fudged a lot of his data. And it wasn't really independently run like that, so yeah. um, that that makes a lot of sense. And it, yeah. it it seems like that would be a pretty expensive way to do things, though, because you have to have that whole infrastructure set up, right? Yeah. So, yeah. Um, when companies get so far and they fail, what is the recourse for them? Is there is there any? I mean, you know, 
when they contract with us or when they set up a contract with us, like they fully understand that this is the risk that they're willing to take to, you know, proceed with the trial. And so, um, you know, like they're not paying us so that we can give them positive results. You know what I mean? Right. And so like, you know, we're, we try to be as objective as we can and try not to sway, you know, one decision or another. Um, and honestly, um, I mean, this is really getting more intricate, but it's actually not even up to us to make that recommendation to them to stop. If, sure. if they, um, if, if we even if we felt like you know this drug wasn't safe or whatever, like we can't even tell them that because that's not under our obligation. Right, um, you just report back what yeah. the data shows. So there's actually three parties that are kind of being very interactive. Um, so you got the we call them the sponsors or the clients who are trying to sell the drug, right? Then you got us, we're the independent statistician that just works with the data. And then we have another party that's called, um, we call them the DMC and, and we call them the data monitoring committee. And they're the ones who basically we report to um, and let them know that this is, this is what is going on with this drug and this is what's going on in this trial. And then they're the ones who make the decision to whether or not stop or continue the trial. Mm. And they're typically, you know, doctors or like Mm. statisticians or, you know, someone with like high knowledge about the drug. Sure. And so, um, yeah. So how many data sets are you looking at kind of on, I don't know, like a week to week basis? And um, of your experiences in the past, how how many do you think show promising results versus not promising results versus like middling data? Yeah, um, good question. So typically, um, we deal with probably like 30 to 40 data sets. Okay. Um, and they're all describing different things. It could be like just a simple demographics data set um, or like lab data set or a disposition data set. Um, so there's like different data sets that come in as a one package. And then we basically take those different data sets and then put them together into a, a data set that's more analyzable. Hmm. And um, so, you know, in terms of the data sets we receive and the data sets I look at, um, I, I probably look at anywhere from 20 to 30 of them. Um, I would say the other 10 or 20 of them actually aren't that necessary, but they just have it for um, as like a regulatory guideline sure, type deal. Sure. And so, um, but now that, you know, I'm, I manage more, um, and no longer, um, are working as a programmer myself, uh, it forces me to look at basically most of the data sets, um, to make sure that my team is doing what they're supposed to be doing sure, essentially. Sure. So, um, kind of a side tangent, how do you biostatisticians, that's, that words, I, I just love the word biostatistician. <laughs> it's, it's I, I, I can't believe I didn't make a mistake saying it yet. But um, how do you biostatisticians deal with issues like missing data or mm-hmm. outliers when you're looking into your research or your data set? Sorry. Yeah, I mean, missing data is pretty common um, in the clinical trial setting, and it really does depend on the sample size and um, how we want to. Um, deal with them um the simplest way would be just to say well because we don't know any information we'll just have to unfortunately discard discard them and and 
And as simple as that sounds, it's also kind of unfortunate because that's all, you know, data that we could have analyzed if, if, if it was there, you know, right. and, and it could be, the missing data can come from many different sources. It could just be because the patient didn't show up or, you know, the person forgot to enter the data or, you know, so because we don't know, um, and because because we can't make any assumptions, sometimes we just kind of have to discard, but it may not affect the trial as much if the sample size is big because then right. each patient yeah. is not weighted as much. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. in a smaller trial, um, it gets a lot trickier and we try to implement different statistical method to um, impute those missing data. Sure. And, um, and that really is uh, case by case. Um, I actually just worked on a consulting project um, with uh, this one client that was looking at this one device that they're trying to use on patients after they had their orthopedic surgery. Um, and um, their data was, first of all, very messy. Mm-hmm. Um, it was it was such a pain to clean that data, but there were also a lot of missing values on some of the things, on the key things that we were trying to look at. And um, they have asked us to figure out a way to um, maybe impute those values. And, and we typically do this thing called a multiple imputation where they look at um, like the history and, and, and try to essentially what we try to create a model that allows um, these missing data to find a closest record for another, from another subject that had very similar, let's say like age, sex, you know, race, Mm. and try to guess um, what their value could be. Mm, And, and so the thing about statistics is that, we always work with uncertainties and so nothing is the absolute truth and some people love that that there's always a variability but some people also hate that that right, it's not yeah. certain yeah. and it's that and and i get that a lot of people enjoy working off of a guarantee but you know that's just not how our line of field works and so so yeah we try our best but i think at the end of the day it really does depend on case by case sure how, how do you even pick out what is an outlier then? Um, I mean, you know, in, in, in the simplest way, you could say, you know, it. <laughs> <laughs> no, you could just say like, you know, there's like actually like a, a, a rule of thumb, like a general rule of thumb, which is like a 1.5 times the IQR, which is um, interquartile range. Okay. Okay. And so, and Ooh, how statistics. you, cal- yeah, how you calculate <laughs> that is you take the, you take the, uh, the 75th percentile and you, you subtract it by the 25th percentile and that's your interquartile range and then you multiply that by 1.5 and then I believe if you add that to don't quote me on this but like if you add that to uh, the 75th percentile and if there's a value that's above that then we'll consider that as an outlier and similarly for the for the lower quartile um if you subtract that value and then if the value is less than that then we'll say that's also an outlier and typically how we deal with those outliers is just it really again it also depends but i think in most cases we tend to just um i think for us outliers are mostly in a lot of our figures and in our lab um 
data and and so sometimes we'll deal with situations where there's a huge outlier that's making the whole graph look really oh, small wow. and yeah. squished. Yeah. And so in those instances, we create another graph that essentially takes out those outliers so that we can see it more clearly. And and because we work typically in a in a bigger trial setting, um, it really does not influence um, the results necessarily. Uh, but we do take note of it, and we do uh, try to follow like who that patient is and 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 why that person is that patient is having such huge outlier and and we do discuss sometimes with the dmc uh letting them know that there was an outlier on this patient um and if you need more information we we're more than happy to send it over to you and and typically they'll say no it's fine right so i, w- I want to continue with that train of thought but kind of just quickly going back to that previous question so what do you have a pre- rough <laughs> percentage for which how much uh, the data that you're uh, reviewing is promising versus not promising. Oh versus yeah, not. yeah, yeah. I forgot to answer that question. Okay. Um, I would say mostly uh, it's kind of like so we look at two things. So one is safety. We want to make sure the drug is safe for patients to take and make sure that you know the drug is not harming them. Um, and so that's one. And the other is we look at efficacy. So we look at how effective this drug is and whether or not, I mean, typically when a clinical trial is set up, it's mostly, you know, we try to, they try to create it in a way so that it's like a randomized um, placebo versus treatment trial. So, you know, placebo, yeah, like it's it's just, you know, nothing. Like it's like, it's just supposed sugar. to be just like sugar, yeah, sugar essentially. Yeah. But um Typically, it comes with like a standard of care treatment, and essentially, the the company wants to prove that not only is the standard of care treatment um, is needed, but we have this other drug on top of that in combination with the standard of care, and we think that's actually going to help the patients even more. And so, um, and so that's kind of how the trial is set up, and and typically, like we when we analyze the data and the, at least the projects that I've been on, which are many, um, most projects will say, you know, there's no issue with safety. I would say about 90% of the time um, or 95% of the time, it's like, oh, like, you know, oh, and also because we work with interim data, like we're always just monitoring like maybe every six months or every three months, or every year. And typically, you know, we'll report to the DMC and they'll say, yeah, it's fine. They can just continue um, without modifications. Um, so that'll happen about 90% of the time, I think. Um, in terms of efficacy, though, I think a lot of um, trials that I've been on have not been proven to be effective, but it's really hard. It's because it's sure. really hard um, to prove uh, a drug being effective. I will say... Like probably out of all the trials I've worked on, probably like two of them, I think. Two? Yeah. Wow. And I've worked on many, many yeah. projects. And so, um, you know, yeah. And so it's like, it's kind of heartbreaking on one end because obviously you you want this drug to work, obviously, because you want to kind of save people and, and, and stuff like that. But, you know, we also have to be very honest and objective as possible. 
And so in most cases, what ends up happening is they'll continue the trial and they'll keep going. And at the end, it'll just be like, it just wasn't effective. And then just mm. the trial will just conclude. Mm. Yeah. Interesting. So, you know, when you put out there that, you know, there's so many of these trials going on at any given point, how, with the reality that there's going to be a lot of trials that are going to affect people negatively, yeah. how is that kind of <clears throat> brought into that whole process of, of the trials and all these different things? It, would a trial just stop if, you know, one or two people got, you know, deathly ill or died? I mean, that's all like pre-specified and the protocol that, this, that they design. Um, but um, essentially there's, there is a, you know, we call it a stopping rule. Um, and and in their protocol, they have to create one um, to be, you know, to be approved as like an official protocol. And, and we try to follow that. And essentially, you know, if they if the trial continues and, and essentially if the, the stopping rule, if that gets triggered, then, um, then the DMC will let the sponsors know saying like, you know, Hey, like, you know, this drug is actually not safe. And, and then what they'll do is they'll tell all the different sites that are dispensing sure, the drug sure. to tell them to stop dispensing it to their patients. Um, and it could, and a stopping rule can really be anything. It could just be like, um, I'm sure most people know uh, what a 95% confidence interval is, but um, I don't. I don't know. Every <laughs> can you briefly explain just? Yeah, everyone? sure. So 95. <laughs> man, I feel like I'm in academia right yeah, now. I mean, we can <laughs> um, yeah. So like a 95% confidence interval is essentially like you are saying that you are the best way to say it to people um, is that you are 95% confident that. Um, a certain let's just say like i don't know um the likelihood of this drug succeeding um is falls under anywhere from uh i don't know like 60 to 90 percent um and so like when you kind of like state that it's like well how do you get the 95 percent confidence interval um and essentially like you kind of have to there are different ways to derive it, um, but and I don't want to get too intricate. But essentially, um, you're saying that if you were to run a trial hundred times, then you're saying that ninety five of them out of hundred will fall under a certain range. Sure. It's basically what you're saying. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. I'm, okay, well, that makes a lot of sense. Thank yeah. you, thank you, Professor David. Uh, yeah, PhD right here. No, oh, yeah, let's no, go. No, no. Go back I'm to school one more time. Student. No, 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 no. no. <laughs> yeah. Um, sorry, what were we talking about? Why? Why did I talk about ninety-five percent confidence? Uh, we we're talking about if trials were affecting people negatively, stop them. Um, oh like, yeah, 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 yeah. So, so like you know, we'll say like you know, um, so then they'll say something like if the lower bound of the confidence interval is like below 60%, which means like um, out of 100 trials that they run, like less than 60 of them is going to be successful. That's how you interpret it. Then then you have to stop the trial. Gotcha. Like that's one of the rules that they implement. Um, and, and, you know, sometimes it gets triggered, sometimes it doesn't. Or it could just be like as simple as like if a sub, if there are, are three subjects within this 
sample size um, experiences a very severe side effect, and those side effects are like pre-specified, sure. then they'll stop the trial. So it could really be anything, but essentially there's always a rule built in place so that just in case if the trial goes horribly wrong, then they'll stop earlier than, than later. Sure. And, and so you said to begin with that patients are all aware of this as possibilities before they sign up for these trials. Yeah. And they probably sign up for these trials in hopes that, you know, the medicine might be better. Yeah. Than it currently exists. Yeah. And um, it's funny because I think it's funny that a lot of my projects that I work on are um, cancer related projects mostly. And, um, and they're typically in stage four. And mm -hmm. so... Um, you know, when you're in stage four in, uh, of any cancer, it's like they're kind of, it's really not about whether I'll survive or not. It's more so like, how long will I live? Sure. Right. And so, you know, when you're put under those circumstances, people are more willing to go through the trial because, you know, they kind of feel like they have nothing else to lose. And mm -hmm. so, but yeah, I mean, you know, Typically, the, the doctor will ask the patient, like, hey, there's a clinical trial going on. Um, would you be interested? And maybe the doctor will go through what they call a uh, investigative investigator brochure. And it's like basically explain the drug and what it does and, and how it could potentially benefit. And essentially, if the subject decides like, yeah, like I want to, I want to go on this clinical trial, then, then they'll sign a consent form and go through all the processes, go through screening and make sure they fit in the eligibility criteria. And, and then, you know, they'll get randomized, um, into either a placebo or a drug and sure how it works. Yeah. Sure. So with the rise of kind of big data, machine learning, kind of advanced computational theory in general, have you noticed any sort of shift in terms of how your industry as a whole is working? Um, are there more kind of avenues to not have to do clinical trials before you get to them? Or is it kind of still the same and it, it really has to, at the end of the day, fall to those in-person things? Sorry, could you could you repeat that one? <laughs> yeah, oh, sorry, so uh, just you know, with machine learning, with mm -hmm. all these new things available, new technology, do you find your industry changing kind of it, it, with that, or do you think it's kind of will always be how it how it is? Well, at least in the um, in a clinical trial setting, it gets really difficult, even with the advancement in technology, because um, you have to go through the FDA, and unless the FDA are willing to be more progressive and say like, hey, like feel free to use any methods or any different softwares. Like they're very like specific, like they're really like to the T, like you have to use a certain software. Like you can't, um, I mean, like, like you have to produce like different reports in a certain format and, and like you need to have data sets that are, um, that meet the criteria to be able to submit to the FDA. And so like they, they're just so, so specific about how, how they want it, it to go. And so even with these like advancement in technology and, you know, all that stuff, like, I just don't think that it would really impact at least from my day to day, at least not in my lifetime, I don't think sure, maybe down sure. the road, but I think because everything needs to go through essentially the government, like there's just no way they're going to change mm -hmm. that. 
right? It has to be a certain threshold yeah, yeah. that the FDA sets. Exactly. Would you say that the FDA is probably the most, uh, I don't know, restrictive in the world? Do you think it's the de facto source for drugs? Um, I just think government is just really strict. Sure, yeah. And, and, and they're very slow to change. Um, and they, they, their mindsets, at least in my opinion, is like, why well, fix something if it's not broken? Sure. And so, like, you know... To be fair, like there are other like statistical softwares that can handle data much better and are able to produce much prettier like presentations. But if it doesn't meet the requirement, then right. no matter how pretty it is, no matter how nice it is, no matter even how how accurate it is, they just can't accept it. Gotcha. And so, gotcha. um, yeah, I mean, so at least in my line of field, like I feel like it's it's difficult. But you know, if you're working under like in like an institution and you're just strictly just doing, you know, biostatistics as a purpose of research, I think that's where you can be more um, innovative and creative um, to, you know, do all different kinds of techniques. But um, at least the line of work that I do, it's pretty rigid. Sure, and so, sure. Yeah. Makes sense. So why would other, why would countries have differing, um, rule sets on which drugs are allowed in their country. Is that just kind of a uh, by country thing? They just decide that they don't want 92% versus 94% confidence or would, do you have any insight into that? Oh, uh, I, I honestly don't know. That's sure, no, a question. We're but, Americans, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, know you know, I'm not interested <laughs> in what, you know, Nigeria does uh, in their country. I mean, no offense to Nigeria. I think Nigeria no is great. Yes. Um, but, yeah. Is most of the clinical trials in the world being done in America or is that kind of also spread out? It is spread out. Okay. And so, like, I actually, like, currently working, I'm currently working on a project um, with um, sites that are located in Japan. Okay. And um, I'm working on a schizophrenia study. Do you get um, to do any trips to Japan for that? I wish. <laughs> no. Um, I mean, I, you know, like, my line of work is really just, like, you're just on the computer all right. day. Yeah, and just so, sets, yeah. So. And so, you know, I don't really, like, have to see patients or you know run tests myself like i don't do a lot of bench work and that's also another thing that people get have like misconception on is like they think that as a biostatistician you go into lab and you mm. like it's all pen and paper <laughs> like you know pipettes and you know lab work and i'm just like no like in fact we just we code all day and so it's just a different style of coding that you know a lot of software engineers sure, use but sure. you know i there's a lot of commonality right. um, in terms of like the language that we use. Do you so, use like R or any other? Yeah, yeah. so I use R. I use, um, so I used to use R when I was working at Hopkins, mm -hmm. but now I use SAS, which okay. is uh, um, something what government likes to use. Um, and so, and then I've also gotten into Python a little bit and, um, yeah, it's like different languages. I, I, I like learning languages, different coding languages. And so trying to get my hands on a little bit more to kind of expand my expertise. But um, but yeah, m mainly I use SAS, but um, I also use R sometimes for work. But it really just depends on what project I'm working on. Sure, sure. Yeah. So at, as, our as our society gets more technologically advanced, you think... Um, the role of a biostatistician will be a lot more programming related, quote unquote, or 
will kind of be traditionally how it's always been? Um, I think I, I mean, it's always been programming and for a lot of biostatisticians and, and I mean, I see, I mean, I, yeah, I guess like it really within, even as a biostatistician, you have different strengths. And so, you know, some people like being a biostatistician to do more of the critical thinking and, and come up with solutions to how to implement, um, to a problem. But um, some or some people just enjoy just not having to think about that, but just kind of code, you know, they're really good at coding and then they'll just like get it done somehow. And so, you know, we work in a very collaborative like environment. And so typically when we formulate a team, like we try to incorporate, we know who's, you know, who's good at what. Right, and right. so make we just, balanced. yeah, so we just try to make it more balanced gotcha, and, gotcha. and yeah, so yeah. Nice. So uh, we have a lot of students CCPC. Well, it, if any of them were thinking about getting into the field of biostatistics, what would you say to them? Is there any kind of particular kind of people that excel in biostatistics? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's kind of for everyone. What would you say? Uh, I would say uh, don't do it. I'm just kidding. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Um, no, I think I think it. I think the job market's amazing Uh, it's great um you know i think people who i would say i know like biostatistics like bio gets a lot of people like scared because not a lot of people are or at least you know a good number of people aren't really like biologically like intelligent (laughs) did i just make people sound stupid no that's not that's not what i meant yeah 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 yeah, yeah. we'll cut that out we'll cut that out um but yeah um you know bio like i feel like mainly like my line of field like i i do more math than than or i do more stat than than bio and it's just that i'm working under a biological setting but you know it doesn't mean like i need to have like just like prestige knowledge of how like the you know the mechanics and how this drug works in a biological sense like i just i just know what what they do or what they're proposing and then i just kind of do more of the statistical critical thinking if there's any any critical thing that i do it's more uh statistics and not really bio and so people who excel in math people who excel in typically like actually more particularly like linear algebra is actually a very useful anything about linear algebra yeah like dealing with matrices and stuff like that um will at least really help you in 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 grad school i think gotcha gotcha um you have to really know your linear algebra to get through grad school um but after that it's just kind of like you know the world's just out there. There's a lot of job opportunities, um, whether that is in pharmaceutical companies or whether that is in institutions, whether that is in, you know, like me, like in the CROs. Um, and really just, there's just a lot of different opportunities and you don't even need to get into bio stuff. You can actually do more stat, like sure. statistics, like, you know, like they're like actuaries and, and stuff like that. And so like, I feel like the opportunities are endless, but um but yeah, I mean, it's it's more math oriented. So like, you know, people who are good and good with numbers, I think will typically excel better. Are there any schools in, in particular that you could uh, re- recommend, recommend for people? Yeah. yeah. I mean, of course, like Michigan is, you know, go blue. Uh, go blue? <laughs> yeah. I mean, Michigan's a top five program. Um, 
uh, in the in the country. And so, you know, Michigan is a really good school. Um, I know people go to UNC. That's like top five as well. Hopkins um, and. Like, I mean, for me, I applied to all those schools and, and even in, I applied to Maryland as well, but, um, Michigan was like my top choice. Nice. Um, and so and you um, got in. Yeah. And, and so it's like a nice college town, you know, like there, you know, diversity is pretty, it's pretty diverse there. And so, um, you know, you get to meet different people and, stuff like that so i mean i would highly recommend michigan but i will say the winter gets pretty oh i i imagine <laughs> it gets pretty depressing and and uh, like people say like in michigan like make sure to take your um vitamin d oh, um, no because sun. no sun yeah it gets really gloomy uh, it gets gloomy like pretty much like every day um i remember one time i was flying from michigan back to maryland and i was it was like during the winter and, and I like on the flight and like we're taking off and then we struck the clouds and then immediately I just see the sun and I'm like, oh man, that's, <laughs> it's still there. that's, that's what the sun looks like. I forgot. <laughs> um, but you know, um, but other than that, like during the summer, it's like oh, really sure it's awesome. Yeah. Like it's like the weather's pretty dry and, and, um, there are a lot of different like festivities that you could go to and, and, and they try to make it more fun um but winter does get pretty dead so yeah yeah just, just beware i guess that sounds good i mean i've never been to michigan but i hear it's just the winters are brutal so yeah yeah no it is nice yeah. to know yeah uh well david i'm gonna cap off this conversation about biostatistics with which is this final question and i'm not sure if you are exactly interested in your field in your spare time but i was wondering if there are any trends or areas of research in biostatistics right now that you find particularly interesting or uh, maybe promising going forwards? Um, geez, that's a good question. Yeah, um, a lot of stuff. You know, I don't know what's promising or, or whatever. Like I haven't really done a lot of research in that sort of area, but one, one area that I really want to uh, work in is in a, in a clinical trial setting, um, I want to work in a study that deals with obesity. Mm. Um, and I even wrote this in my my grad school application that this is something I wanted to work on um, because I grew up like struggling with obesity and 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 also like you know in my family too. And so like I've always wanted to know if there are any sort of you know different drugs or sure. whatever that could help people you know control their weight better um and that's something i've always been interested in unfortunately i don't have the opportunity yet um but i'm hoping one day i could work on a study like that gotcha do you know if we've, we've been making strides in the past couple decades or so or has it been pretty stagnant I feel like it's i mean there are certain drugs that people take already that kind of helps them with controlling their appetite. Um, there's a drug called fentermine that that does that very well. Um, but, you know, with any drug, I feel like it comes with different side effects. Right. And, and, and so, you know, it's kind of like you got to pick your poison at some point. But I, I, do, I do think that, you know, eventually they'll probably come up with something better. Um, but 
at least as far as I know, there are drugs out there that, you know, people sell like for, for weight control gotcha, and gotcha. that doctors prescribe. So, well, I have high hopes for that. And I'm sure the entire field of biostatistics and, and just medicine in general. And yeah, I mean, I, I, I had no idea, honestly, anything about biostatistics before this conversation. So you really helped enlighten me a lot about about your field, David. So I appreciate that. Yeah, and I also probably f- put like fifty people to sleep. <laughs> if there are even fifty people hey, listening to this, yeah, podcast. if fifty people listening to this, that'd be great. <laughs> so, uh, so we we like to close off with a, a question about um, kind of who in your life has been a. Uh, who who is one person in your life who has heavily impacted your spiritual walk? And let's try to keep it outside of of, of your family, if okay. possible. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, one person really comes into my mind, and he's actually um, he's a pastor, and he actually spoke for um, our retreat last year, the Young Adult Retreat last no way. year, and also the Youth Group Retreat this year. Um, his name is Pastor right. Brian, Brian Shim. Shim. Yeah, the beard. Yeah, he actually was like my role model in terms of, um, you know, my spiritual life. Um, And I remember like back in 20, I want to say 2018, um, you know, I was I was um, just enjoying life. Like I was working, I was hanging out with my friends and, you know, just sometimes going out you know, late at night and like, you know, just like hang out, um, do, you know, drink and stuff like that. And, and I remember just like thinking to myself that like after a certain, like at a certain time point, like I was kind of like, man, like, yes, this is fun in the moment, but it's just like so unfulfilling. And I remember looking at Pastor Brian, who was my pastor at that time um and i could see that he's just he was going through a lot with you know with him like this it was his first um job as a pastor at our church and um at our old church and and you know with typically with any korean churches it's like it's it's tough being a english ministry pastor sure and they're severely underpaid and you know they like abuse not like abuse them like physically but like they like get them to overwork and and you know it's just like when i like see him like just kind of grinding and just like working really hard for church like i just remember looking at him and and how still like even then like how peaceful like how happy he was like just being able to serve god and and just be able to you know glorify him through through his work like it was something that i like saw that and i was like man like there's two different kinds of joy Mm. like for me like i i'm experiencing this temporary joy of like you know like going out like drinking and getting drunk and like just like you know just partying or whatever not that i party that much (laughs) i don't think (laughs) but um but then like i see like pastor brian who's experiencing more of like a sustainable joy that through his work even though it may be hard and 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 it can there you know there are a lot of uphills to climb like 
I could see that he's like truly enjoying and being happy and being satisfied and being at peace with sure, everything that he sure. does. And and he was like the first person that made me wonder like what that life kind of looks like. And I mean, he never forced anything um, upon me. And, and, you know, his personality is just very like, he doesn't really talk a lot. Like he just kind of let his actions kind of mm. speak for itself. Mm. And so, um, you know, it made me wonder more and it made me want to ask him more questions and, and wanted to know, you know, how to essentially like find that kind of joy in my own life, you know? Um, and he really helped me like kind of understand, you know, why basically like why we live on this earth and, sure. and, and like, you know, who we're meant to live for. And, and I really do, like appreciate all the things that he has done to really help me see that um and so yeah sure i would say yeah he was like my biggest influencer sure sure so how has his influence inspired you to serve in your own way or live your own spiritual life yeah i mean it's funny because you know as as i've gotten closer to him um i kind of found the heart to like serve more and I mean, I mean so my background in serving was mostly in the praise team um i was either playing the drums or i was leading um with a guitar um and so like you know i did that every week um because our church was like a, a smaller church like we only had like 60 70 people um but um, as I've gotten to like grow and, and learn from him and, and really see how he's doing, you know, the work of the ministry and, and, um, saw that, I, I saw that there was an opportunity to serve the youth students, um, because we were, we didn't have a youth group pastor. We just had an English ministry pastor that was overseeing everything. Um, and they wanted to have a director, um, that would kind of help like coordinate different events and different, you know, social activities. Um, and so, you know, that I like, wasn't even thinking about that. I was just trying to somehow, some way I just had this heart for these youth students. Cause I also grew up, um, when I was in youth group, like I didn't have a youth group pastor or anything like that. And so I really, I did understand like, you know, what they would feel like kind of thing and so i organized a uh a lock-in one night and it went really well like i had different people around me helping me and and stuff like that and and the church saw that and saw a potential opportunity and so they actually hired me as a as a youth director wow. um so i served as a youth director for about a year and a half two years um and and that's really like I think during those two years, I really learned um, that God really truly works through people because um, just as a background, like I'm not good with kids. Sure. I actually don't like kids all that <laughs> okay. much. <laughs> um, That's and great like, for a youth director. <laughs> yeah, I mean, a lot. Yeah, I know, right? Um, yeah, I like meet, I meet the criteria to, <laughs> to serve as a youth director. Um, yeah, and so like I... You know, I grew up being the the youngest in the family um, on both sides of my family. And so, like, I don't really, 
I didn't really know how to take care of people all that well, um, let alone like a group of people. <laughs> and so um, like when I first signed up for this, I was like, God, like, am I, is this okay? Like, I don't know. Like, I, I, I don't know if I can really trust myself and like, I don't know if I can really handle the pressure. And also like, I don't know if I can handle the kids really. Um, I don't know if I can be patient with them, but I think God really took hold of me and he really showed me that it is not my work but is his work through me mm. and that the only thing i needed to do was rely on him um and that's how i feel like that's how i got through two years of just like serving as a youth director sure. and um and you know i built a lot of memories good great memories with the kids i mean they're in college now which is crazy but um yeah, like I learned a lot and I I really truly understood that like when we serve, it's not just for other people's benefit, but it's also for our own as well as for our own growth and, and what we get to learn as we serve. And and I think through that, I was able to, through serving like the youth kids, uh, that's how I learned that, you know, serving is also meant for me, for me to grow mm -hmm. and not just for the kids. Sure. Well, that, that's awesome here that, that Pastor Brian's influence brought you so far and still maintains with you to this day. Um, I want to ask then, so, you, you know, you've been at Christ Center for a year now about? I would say about like a year and a half. Sure. Yeah, I started uh, like so in February. getting close to two years. What would you think is your aspirations now, uh, you know, now that you're, you know, more acquainted with Christ Central as a whole, what would you want to be doing next? Um, you know, I was actually telling people that I, I've been serving in the praise team for so long, um, since I was like in middle school and, um, and I enjoyed it. It's kind of like, I, it's like second nature to me now at this point. Like I don't get phased by a lot of, you know, like I know some people like get nervous when they're up in the stage and stuff like that for me. Like, I just don't even think about that. Cause it's just not. I just gotten so used to it. Um, but one thing I felt like as I was maturing spiritually that I struggle with is this idea of spotlight. Mm. And so, you know, Palby knows this, but like, I hate mm, the fact I see, that I, I had to get out of the cage to play drums up on the stage. Um, and like I was like man like I wish I could just play in the cage like nobody can see me <laughs> like it was kind of like my way of trying to like justify myself that like it's okay like no one's gonna see you in the cage so like you're not gonna be in the spotlight but like now that I'm up on stage it's like you know like it's something I've always struggled with mm -hmm. and so like I wanted to um, be more intentional with the way I serve and I wanted to be i wanted to serve more in like the like more of a background like behind the scene nobody really knows and it, so that it can just be between just me and god gotcha. um but you know it's funny like i think when i was thinking that like probably about i would say about like a year ago um i knew that ccpc just didn't have drummers then. yeah we really didn't <laughs> and like i know um it was funny because like I got a random text from from Palvi, um, whom I didn't know then, mm. and he was like, 
basically introducing himself to me and he was like yeah i was uh talking to pastor brian and he told me that uh mm. you you play you play the drums and he was asking me if i would be interested in auditioning and stuff like that and i took some time to pray about it because sure. and i i told palby this i was like i to be honest i i been trying to be more intentional with the way that I serve and gotcha. and I want to be able to truly glorify God and not to steal any of his glory um to myself and but then like as I spent some time praying I just had this conviction that like you know like also another way of serving is just to fill in wherever is needed for the church and if church needs drummers then you know then you should you should serve as a drummer. It's also what you're good at. Then I realized when three other drummers came in <laughs> and they're like <laughs> 10 times better than me. <laughs> it's funny because like Thomas and Palpy will joke saying like they prayed about getting a drummer, but they feel like they prayed too hard. <laughs> now they have yeah, four have drummers. Four. <laughs> um, and and so, you know, with that being said, like I I do, now that like, I don't have to, you know, serve every week or not that I was even trying to, um, I was, when I serve, like I always think about sustainability and longevity. Oh, and sure, so sure. I want to make sure I don't get burnt out. And, and like, and so now that we have like four drummers and that they are all like doing their, you know, each week we're using different drummers. I feel like I have more time to serve, but I don't know exactly what where hmm. i want to serve and i thought about the welcoming team um just something more just like behind the scenes yeah behind the scenes right. or like do the parking lot right stuff like something just more like low-key sure. and staying low um just i want to feel like god is like proud not that he won't He's right. not proud of me. But you want to do it not for yourself, but yeah, for God's glory. Yeah, gotcha, yeah. gotcha. And so um, it's just my way of proving myself that it is just between me and God. And so, Well, I can tell you right now, every ministry at church could use some help. So whichever, one you, that. whichever one you choose to join, I'm sure yeah. they'd love to have you. I will so. say... I'll say the the place I'll end up serving is probably the one that doesn't get approached to me. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, watch out, children's ministry. Don't ask me <laughs> yeah. to serve in children's ministry. Not even the youth, you know, ministry. Don't ask me. I'll I'll make I'll make He's my decision. He's keeping a mental note. Yeah, those which ones that he has been asked. Yeah. <laughs> and so, All yeah, right. we'll, we'll see. Thanks, thanks for talking to me, David. I I had a great time. I hope you had a great time. Yeah, no, it's great. Yeah, I'll, we'll catch you guys some other time. See ya. Nice.